often do you walk into a grocery store today and you hear the term superfoods? I feel like every time I turn around in a grocery store, I hear, oh, check out this new superfood or we need to be eating more superfoods. I hear health and fitness gurus talking about it all the time. In fact, in my local grocery store, there is an entire aisle dedicated to superfoods. Well, my guest today was really intrigued by this superfood phenomenon, and she wanted to know how these superfoods were not only affecting our bodies, but also how the growing of these superfoods was affecting the farmers. Welcome to the Business with Purpose podcast. Welcome to the Business with Purpose podcast. Here's our host, Molly Stewart, our mom. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an all-around amazing person who's trying to make a positive impact, not only with their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Anne Shin. Anne is an award-winning director and producer known for beautiful, compelling documentary films, series, and innovative interactive projects. Her films and series have aired on CBC, TVO, HBO, ABC, CBC, The Documentary Channel, Discovery Channel, HGTV, History Channel, Slice, I mean, all over. Her latest documentary, The Superfood Chain, follows Anne as she meets farming families in Bolivia, Ethiopia, Philippines, and more that are affected by the superfood industry. This was a fascinating conversation. I learned so much, and I know that you are going to learn a lot too. Hey, real quick, I just wanted to say thank you guys for the kind comments and just how supportive you have been during this season of the coronavirus. And I just wanted to let you know that I am praying for you, that whatever you are going through right now, that uh, you we will get through this together. Um, I know times are hard right now, but I pray that we come out on the other side of this stronger than ever before. As always, if you need me, if you need anything, just feel free to reach out on social media or via email. Now, without further ado, on to my conversation with Anne. And welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Molly. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. How are you? I am fantastic. And I am really excited to chat with you because I am a huge fan of documentaries. And you're actually the second documentary filmmaker that I've had on the podcast. And in like almost 190 episodes, or maybe it is over 190 at this point. That's, it's a very, it's a very small crowd, but it's just, it's, I love talking to filmmakers and documentary filmmakers. And when I was reading about your latest documentary on superfoods, I was just like, okay, I need to talk to this person because I have so many questions. So I'm just, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really eager. And um, before we kind of get really diving deep into the conversation. I'm going to have you do what I have all my guests do, and that's give us the and 101. So tell us who you are and kind of how you got to where you are today and doing what you do. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I'm in Shin and I'm a documentary filmmaker as well as a writer. 
I started out at CBC Radio, and I, um, I've been writing all my life, and I've always loved stories. And um, I started doing radio documentaries, so I was, you know, a studio nut, just in studio working with people's clips and telling their stories with sound and music and creating soundscapes. And I loved it, and I realized I really want to make long-form docs, and that's how I got into making film docs. But me personally, I grew up on a farm in Langley, BC. It was a mushroom farm. I was picking mushrooms as a kid to help out the family farm. <laughs> and uh, we had our own big, big vegetable garden, which was really verdant because we had mushroom manure <laughs> that we put into the soil all the time. So yeah. we had giant vegetables. And, you know, I live in Toronto now. And I, you know, the biggest, I was living in a, in a house where we had just had access to a patch of land and everything else was just parking lot. And so my daughter and I were trying to do this little garden, but I um, was really kind of concerned about where are we getting our foods? And that got me going on the uh, journey that became a film about superfoods from around the world. But uh, yeah, I've done other documentaries. I, I did one about two war vets from the Iran Iraq war. That's called my enemy, my brother. And that was, nominated for an Emmy and shortlisted for an Oscar. Um, I followed North Korean defectors um, escaping from North Korea through China. That was called The Defector. And uh, I've done a number of other films, including one about smart drugs and and a whole range of things. I like to, you know, I get, (laughs) like many of us, we think about a lot of things in a day. And and, uh, when something just sticks with me and I come back to it again and again, I find I want to delve into it further and I um, start to develop and research a documentary around it. Yeah, I'm that same type of person where if there's a particular topic that I'm interested in or I want to learn more about, like I am also just like I want to research as much as I can, but I obviously am not a documentary filmmaker. So I just tend to interview people about those topics. Um, But, you know, I'm just really curious because I also have a background in radio, coincidentally, and um, I'm just I'm curious, you know, when you said that you were doing these kind of radio documentaries and then you realized that you really wanted to do kind of long form documentaries. How did you make that transition from radio to film? Because obviously the the mediums are similar in some aspects, but very different in others. And so kind of what was your first step in making that transition? Well, I was always visually inclined as well. So that helps. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I made the transition because I was a radio producer and I was basically doing current affairs on Metro Morning in Toronto. Uh, producer there. And it was not that difficult to go from current affairs and radio to being a current affairs producer in TV. You, you kind of, you have to book interviewees and, and that kind of thing. So I, I transitioned to TV as a producer in that way and slowly started to do my own pieces and pitching my own stories. And I think that uh, it was really through a couple starts, I I pitched a film at NFB, as well as I started working for production companies on documentary series, and um, ended up directing a, a documentary for the National Film Board called Western Eyes, which was about cosmetic surgery among Asians. Um, it was a bit controversial about, you know, creating a double fold in the eyelid to, to make the eyes bigger. And it was kind of a, a look into the 
the different reasons why mm. someone might choose to do that mm. and following a couple of women in, in Canada and yeah, and started working for the bunch of production companies. So then I was directing as a freelancer on a whole range of lifestyle series and doc series and the lifestyle is, you know, it's, it's where a lot of people in the industry find it a uh, grind because it's so repetitive and there's, you know, you do series episode after episode, but it, you do get a lot of experience, get a lot of directing hours in those series formats. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, the more, obviously the more kind of diverse experience that you end up having, and then that just kind of leads to one thing or another, and it just kind of builds on itself. Um, mm-hmm. And so I want to ask about the latest documentary that you have produced, and it's the the superfood chain. And this, when I read the summary, I watched the trailer and began just reading more about this, I was fascinated. And mm-hmm. I know that, uh, like, kind of how you alluded to this during your introduction is, you know, it kind of just started because you grew up on a farm, um, which is awesome. And then you wanted to start this garden with your daughter and it just kind of grew from there. And so I'd love for you to just kind of, for those that are not familiar, give us sort of the, the introduction as to what this documentary is about and kind of some of the things that you've learned along the way. Sure. So I'm, I, I, I go to health food stores and I like to buy things that are healthy. And, and I got to buying things that were marketed as superfoods. And I started to realize and notice how it seemed like every couple months there was a new superfood that was being introduced on the shelves. And, you know, there are those who call themselves early adopters of technology, right? I, I would say I'm an early adopter of like food trends or, or just health food trends. And I started to question why there were so many superfoods being introduced to our grocery stores. And on the one hand, I thought, oh, it's cool. We get more access to really healthy foods from around the world. But on the other hand, I I wondered, how does this impact the farmers who produce the superfoods? Because most of the superfoods are really age-old, traditional crops that are, you know, grown by farmers on a small scale. And suddenly they're introduced to a, you know, an international market I wondered how it affected the farmers and also wondered like I just wanted to get a sense of the whole footprint that it took to like for me to buy a packaged superfood off the shelf. So that got me exploring. I mean, the other thing, too, was I was serving up superfoods to my kids. So I was serving up, you know, quinoa and things like that. And and my daughter, my youngest daughter would be like, you know, where is it from? And I, I, I found I could name the country that I think that it came from where I'd be like, I think quinoa is from South America. I know quinoa is from South America somewhere, but I didn't have anything else to tell her or why we're eating it or, you know, I realized I was really divorced from one where the food was coming from, but also like how it's prepared or there was no cultural significance to the food that I was feeding the kid. The only reason why I was feeding it was because I thought, you know, it's supposed to be healthier for you. So these were some of the questions that I had in my mind that got me to start researching about superfoods in different countries and and how it gets to our dinner plates. Now, for people that maybe are not as early adopters of superfood trends or just food trends in general, like how is a superfood defined? Well, you know, 
there will be in, in pop culture, like if an Oprah Winfrey or Gwyneth Paltrow would talk about something, they'd say that it's really healthy for you, that it um, may help combat diseases. They're known to be really super rich with nutrients or high in antioxidants and in some way helps fight disease or helps helps you stay healthy. So they're packed with extra nutrients, I suppose, is, is one way to put it. And the thing that you were really kind of finding along the way was that a lot of times this is just a marketing tactic. And, you know, obviously in some cases, maybe it's true. Maybe some cases it's a marketing tactic, you know, and it's it really reminds me very similar to kind of greenwashing. And I almost say that it could be a form of greenwashing. And, you know, obviously for those listening that maybe don't know what greenwashing is, it's just sort of when a company will just put, you know, like, oh, this is all natural or organic, but it's not certified organic. And it's just making the marketing or making the packaging, kind of packaging it up in a way that makes it look clean and organic and healthy or, or whatever. Um, and it could be on food or beauty products or cleaning products, things like that. Um, and so you know, what did you find when you began to research this? Is that the term superfood? Like, is is it really more of just a marketing tactic? Is it truer in some cases and not in others? What did you learn? I think that the the term superfood and and the way that it's marketed leads people to believe like it's really something better than what they can get in their own home or, or in their own communities or better than other things that you buy in the grocery store that you prepare for yourself. I think it's somewhat misleading. I mean, they are definitely nutrient rich, but it's not to say that you need to buy those foods. I mean, in a a typical North American diet, we have access to a lot of nutrient rich foods. And so it's not crucial that we have this food that's extra high in protein because we have so many protein sources, you know, or something that's high in antioxidants. Um, I suppose that's always a good thing to consume, but there are so many different kinds of things that you can consume that are high in antioxidants. And I mean, a good example is kale, which is local and that's considered a superfood. And until it was called a superfood, it wasn't really that popular because it's a tough, you know, cruciferous kind of uh, leafy vegetable. But once it was recognized as a superfood, it, it suddenly became much more popular. So I guess you know, cabbage, cabbages are good. I mean, there's just tons of great vegetables and foods out there that um, if you have a balanced diet, you're going to be healthy, right? Yeah, Um, absolutely. So in that way, the whole, the whole industry or the whole, the hype around superfoods can be a bit misleading. Like people might think they need to buy the superfood to be healthy, but in fact, no, like there are extra nutrients in these foods, but there's tons of foods around us that are very nutritional. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, sometimes I think we just overcomplicate nutrition. <laughs> yes. It's like put, yeah. put a fruit, put a vegetable on your plate, put some yeah. lean meats. Like it doesn't yeah. have to be that hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, you know, obviously this is a topic that I am particularly interested in and passionate about. And that's one of the reasons I started this whole podcast was to really educate consumers in general on you know, how our purchasing power really does affect the way, you know, that things are made and and how we can use our purchasing power for good. And, 
you know, to educate people on the fact that, you know, your clothing is made by a, a person. It's not made by a robot. Like if there's a person sitting at a sewing machine making your shirt, making your jeans, you know, all of the, the beauty products you buy, you know, where are the ingredients sourced, all those kinds of things and, and just getting consumers to begin to to think about it. And a lot of times I have found over the the years that for many people, it's just an out of sight, out of mind kind of situation where they just, they don't think about what happens to their trash once they put it in a trash can. <laughs> like they don't think about the person that, you know, sourced the cotton that was used to make their, their denim. It's just, it's an out of sight, out of mind. And so, but I think what has actually been at the forefront of this conversation in general over the past 10 to 15 years has been the food industry. And we've seen a big shift from, you know, the food that I ate as a kid, which was a lot of like Dunkaroos and boxed mac and cheese, you know what I mean? Like just you know, any tizers and Yoohoo and I mean just the the foods of the 90s like kid yeah. cuisine. I mean, who remembers kid cuisine, you know, with the in the frozen food aisle. So, I mean, that's just that was really popular in the 90s and then all of a sudden everybody was like, "Oh, wait, that actually might be really terrible for you." And oh, it might be, you know, harming the food industry. And so there's been this shift in the past 10 to 15 years towards more organic, non-GMO and and farm to fork foods and supporting local farmers and all those kinds of things. And so I think people are beginning to question more where their food comes from. But, you know, I thought this was just so interesting because when I, you know, I love going, you know, shopping at a store like Sprouts or Whole Foods that are, you know, healthier grocery stores. And so those stores in particular really do heavily market the the packaged superfoods and all those kinds of things. And a lot of time the branding on it is, you know, could be maybe misleading. And so you in your research, you began to to travel to a lot of these countries that um, that farm some of these superfoods, Bolivia, Ethiopia, the Philippines, etc. And so I'm I'd love for you to just kind of share what are some of the things you learned along the way that maybe surprised you? Well, um, we started this journey, my daughters and I, going to Bolivia to learn more about how quinoa is grown. And um, I was really surprised at um, how our consumption of it in North America affected local farmers in Bolivia. So it used to be that local Bolivians would grow it and it would be sold in the local markets and some of it would be sold abroad, but most of it was consumed locally. As soon as, you know, it became a big thing um, in North America, uh, the demand went sky high and the farmers got really wealthy, which was good. But then it became the quinoa grain itself became too expensive for local Bolivians. So ironically, they were having pasta <laughs> and, and, and shipping out their quinoa yeah, to yeah. North America it caused a disruption in kind of like the sustainability of, of that food source for the local country. And then when the um, larger farms started getting established in Bolivia and other places, it started to change that market again. And I mean, I suppose this happens with all food crops that become like a, a mass food crop. United States, Canada, China started to produce 
quinoa as well. So then the quinoa prices really dropped. And so suddenly all the farmers that were benefiting from it in Bolivia, they had turned all their land over to farm quinoa. And then, you know, the prices drop. And so, which it happened over a matter of years. By the time me and my daughters went down to Bolivia, the local farmers were saying that quinoa prices were so low that they were getting more money for the heirloom potatoes that they were growing. So they had turned their crops over to the potatoes. And in, and in Bolivia and in South America, there's, you know, over a hundred varieties of potatoes. It's, it's really fascinating. So that was really eye-opening to me. And we talked to a mid-sized kind of company that grows and packages quinoa. And they were saying, you know, when they built their company, it was profitable and manageable to create a company of their size, uh, a mid-sized company, and ship quinoa abroad. But then when the quinoa prices fell because of global production, they're suddenly really struggling. So that was really interesting. It's, it's kind of like the boom and the bust of a crop that we witnessed in just um, kind of exploring quinoa as a superfood. That is fascinating. I would never have, you know, uh, to be honest, I just would never have even realized that that could be a, a possibility with a food like that. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, I always, every time I, I watch a documentary, um, especially one that maybe challenges a way of thinking or or kind of educates me in, um, you know, in something that, you know, how do I, how, like, what do I do with this information? Because, you know, I always go back to the Maya Angelou quote, like, when you know better, you do better. And so for you as, you know, what are the things that you kind of took away from this that you have begun to implement maybe in your own family? And what was sort of your end goal in educating you know, people who view this documentary, how are they to kind of take the information and maybe begin to make positive change? Right. The thing I really learned in this process was that we really do have an impact on farmers, no matter how packaged and mass produced the item seems. It's like whatever you touch and you pick up and you buy, it, it does create a ripple effect. And so I really realized that um, something like quinoa that's fair trade is really, you know, from a source, you know, it's really worth buying that rather than something that's not fair trade. I mean, there are some issues around whether all fair trade organizations are really helpful or not. But when I look at some of the fair trade organizations in Bolivia and Philippines with, you know, virgin coconut oil production or coconut water, I realize that the fair trade organizations do a lot. Like in, in Philippines, they provide local farmers with machines that help them dehusk the coconuts so that they can get them to the virgin coconut oil producers in a form that they'll purchase it. And they make the local farmers will make more money off that coconut than if they were just selling the coconut in the local market. And so without that fair trade organization, they wouldn't have had those machines um, so I, I didn't realize that like fair trade organizations will do that. They'll also lobby for land rights for farmers. There's lots of traditional farmers around the world where land wasn't deeded in the way that it came to be, you know, zoned and deeded in the latter 20th century in those countries. So farmers that have been whose families have lived and in their minds owned the land they lived on are suddenly being you know, miscegenated or being kicked off the lands 
by developers. And so fair trade organizations, some of them will even lobby for the farmers' rights. So it's a long-winded way of saying fair trade really works and is helpful. And that's something that I go out of my way to do, which is check labels. And if it's fair trade, I, I try to buy that. And also I try to buy locally because I realized there's a lot of great nutritional stuff around us. And the closer you are to the source of food, the lower the lower the footprint, and the more meaningful the purchase is in some ways. Why not help the farmers around you and choose to eat the things that are being you know grown around you rather than just what's packaged as a superfood from afar? Uh, this is not to say avoid superfoods or superfoods aren't good, but it just it just got me out of my habit of just kind of knee jerk you know, reaching for what seems to be like the best thing just because of the way it's marketed. You know, when we're busy, we're in the grocery stores, we just want to get like the most nutritional impact per purchase. And we're just reaching for things willy nilly. I realized you can be mindful about how you shop in the grocery store and, and um, have a positive impact on farmers near you and far away as well. That is a great point. And, you know, it's funny because I was actually thinking about this the other day that I just kind of had one of those moments where I was like, man, things have changed. Because when I was in Sprouts the other day, just doing my family grocery shopping, there is, I kid you not, there is an entire aisle now in my Sprouts for superfoods. Like it wow. is, it's labeled superfoods. <laughs> and so I was I, like, I think that is very interesting because that yeah. is definitely not something that was around when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very interesting, too. It's an indication of where we're at in society. Most of us in cities are dealing with pollution, you know, hearing about friends or relatives getting diseases that are often related to pollution or awful lifestyle. And I think that I'm not surprised that Sprouts has an aisle devoted to superfoods now because, I mean, that's often why we look to superfoods. We think we want to not get sick. We want to fight off cancer or whatever. So we think about, well, maybe this will this will help. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting indication of where we're at. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to take a quick break from my conversation with Anne to share with you that the brand new summer 2020 capsule collection from Seiko Designs has launched. This collection is the perfect expression of reclaiming our vision at Seiko Designs. Our minimalist floral design, Hide and Seek, which is my favorite, is a celebration of the hidden gems in our midst every day. We've reimagined and elevated the classic Ugandan paper bead jewelry to add a delicate and unique flair to your summer wardrobe. And the tiger lily pieces are amazing. They are inspired by the boldness of their namesake and each of our bags are as eco-friendly as they are beautiful. As you continue about your days, we hope this collection reminds you to look for the miracles and to be fearlessly, boldly, and unapologetically you. To shop the incredible Summer 2020 collection, go to segodesigns.com slash Molly Stillman. That's S-S-E-K-O designs.com slash Molly Stillman. Now back to my conversation with Anne. I love that you said to advocate for fair trade in food because that is obviously one of my big, big, big passions is advocating for fair trade in general. Um, I had the opportunity to be the keynote speaker at the Fair Trade Federation Conference uh, last year. And it was just so great just being around so many other people who 
are passionate about fair trade, just like I am. And, you know, it was great to meet, you know, people from companies like Equal Exchange who are doing, you know, fair trade chocolate and fair trade coffee and, you know, all, you know, fair trade seasonings and um, like companies like Serve. And, um, you know, there's just, we're at a point, thankfully, where there is almost not a category of anything you buy anymore that is not that there's not a fair trade option and that just really makes me excited and you know I in the past couple years have also just really tried to be aware of okay where where is this chicken coming from I mean my husband and I like we are big you know we are not vegetarians or vegans by any I I think it's amazing when people do that we love meat so um, but you know we started every year we buy a or every kind of maybe every other year we buy a cow from a local farmer and um, you know this beef farmer like he's an organic beef farmer you know lives maybe an hour north of us and he has been farming for he is maybe in his late 70s now farmer vmac and like he is just he is like the quintessential beef farmer but it's just really great to be able to to know that you know this beef that my family and i are eating is not just quality and it's you know clean and it's like the most delicious meat ever but you know we're supporting a local farmer we've been to the farm we've seen how everything is done there and it's just really sustainable and it's really beautiful and I just love being able to support local farmers like that. And so um, I echo all of your sentiments because I think it is something that more and more people should be moving towards. And it takes baby steps. It's not, you know, we can't overhaul everything we do overnight, but little by little progress really does add up in this area. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Anne, um, before we transition to the get to know you round, um, if people are interested in, in seeing the Superfood Chain documentary or maybe any of the other documentaries that you have created, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so there is a superfoodchain.com website, the superfoodchain.com, and there are links to view it there. It's also available on Amazon Prime, Google Play, and Vudu and Tubi. So yeah. Nice. Awesome. And all of your other documentaries are there as well? You should check out fathomfilm.ca. Okay. Fathomfilm.ca. And um, there are some films you can just stream off of that website as well, different documentaries. Fantastic. Well, I will make sure for the listeners as well to include all of those links in the show notes so you can access those on my blog, stillbeingmolly.com slash podcast, or you can just wherever you are listening to this on your device, you can just kind of scroll up and usually the show notes are right there at the bottom. And so you can access all of that directly there. Um, So, Anne, before we go, uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the show where we just get to kind of ask some fun, lighthearted, get to know you questions. So, Anne, are you ready for the get to know you round? Yes. Awesome. All right. Question number one of all of your pet peeves, we all have some pet peeves. Which one is maybe your strangest or most unique? (laughs) Dirty floors. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I like to go barefoot in the house and I hate feeling anything dirty or gritty or (laughs) sticky underfoot. So yeah, that's my pet peeve. Yes. Actually, funny enough, my kids and I and my husband were out 
on our back deck over the weekend planting our seedlings because it's you know it's that time of year planting seedlings and my my sweet kids I mean they're six and four so what do you expect but they were just like tracking so much dirt in the house and so I was like okay we have to vacuum and mop and do all the things because I can't stand like walking on all of a sudden I'm like oh why is there like sand underneath of my feet (laughs) so I totally totally relate to that Okay. Yeah. Uh, Yes, exactly. Um, Okay. So question number two, in 40 years, what do you think people are going to be nostalgic for? That's a great question. Yeah. Because I mean, my daughters don't even know what a dial phone is or, or a flop. (laughs) I got a floppy disk. Um, I was, we were moving offices and there was a floppy disk and my 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 colleague, another producer, was like, "What is that?" Because <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm 50 and she's 30. <laughs> I was like, "It's called a floppy disk. <laughs> it's just another one of those." Uh, what will people be nostalgic for? Um, that's a great question. I bet you. Oh, I don't even know. I don't even know. Maybe we come back to that. I, I think it's anything that you have to do, like manually yeah <laughs> anything as a you know that's not digital I know my husband and I were talking so I didn't I'm not I mean I'm pretty up on you know tech news but I'll be honest I did not realize that Tesla had actually like had already released self-driving cars like I did not yes. realize that this was a thing that people owned currently because he was t- my husband was telling me about this guy that he knows that he is not like he doesn't work with him but I guess they're in a similar industry and anyway they they were talking and the guy takes his self-driving car to work and like works in his car on his way to work and I was just I was like wait what that's a thing like people do that and he was like yeah, yeah I'm I- yeah, I mean, people with a lot of money have have these self driving yeah, Teslas. It's amazing, and then it's like no emissions either. Whatever, it's Great. insane. And so the more, so then I got on this kick where I was reading. See, I tell you, when I when I learn something new, I'm like, okay, well, now I need to read all about this. So I was reading all about the self driving Teslas, and you know, it just was fascinating me. And then of course I told my kids about it, and then they were like, what? They're cars that drive themselves? Like my kids were fascinated, and mm. you know, and then I was reading about how like. It's predicted, obviously, we have no idea if this is ever going to actually happen, but they were predicting that, you know, in whatever, 50, 60 years, if everybody drove self-driving cars, then there would actually be potentially less accidents because cars would be interacting with like you don't have necessarily like human error obviously I'm sure that there's still some computer error but they're talking about that had to be like less accidents and then so like what happens to insurance companies and it was just it was a very just fascinating begin to think about and I was like wow uh, I I don't even know like that kind of hurts my head to think about the fact that maybe yeah, one day maybe we... people be nostalgic about actually having to have drive a car yeah. to steer, you know put your hands on the steering wheel and drive it and <laughs> I put the brake pedals on or the you know have the decisions to make about that Yes exactly exactly well it's you know I mean I'm even nostalgic about like the car I first drove when I started driving cuz it was like a 1993 Ford Escort it was manual transmission and like it was a piece of junk but like I loved that thing it was my you know my car when I turned 16 and um you know it's I miss I miss driving that clunker and I don't know why well well my partner owns a a huge record store and they sell a lot of turntables and that's an interesting you know example there where in an age of streaming music yeah 
people are buying records and record players because they want to go back to putting, you know, taking a record out of its sleeve, mm-hmm. putting it on the turntable and dropping the needle and, you know, oh, and absolutely. feeling the music. <laughs> yes. Yes. I remember my mom had, um, you know, so my mom was a child of the fifties and sixties and, um, you know, in early seventies and she had an intense record collection. Like she had the Beatles, Abbey road. She had thriller. She had Prince's purple rain all on vinyl. And when I was a kid, I would just sit and play with her records for hours and I you know after she died I don't know what happened to her record collection but it still like makes me sad to think about the fact that I'm like where did all those records go you know I want want those records because today I mean people would die for those (laughs) like original Beatles vinyls and things like that so um, okay, so this is the last question I'm going to ask because it's the question I ask all my guests. And that is, Anne, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? To run a business with purpose is where you're creating a community in the world that reflects the values you hope to kind of, you know, reify into the world. So I work with women and we all are very passionate about the projects we undertake. And so it's wonderful to be working in a community of women and we're all kind of pursuing our dream. And, and so it's, it's wonderful to be cultivating that environment and to work together with people like that and to, you know, to send out into the world, the product of our visions. And so I feel really privileged and really happy that I get to spend my days with a bunch of cool kick-ass women. That's awesome. That is awesome. I think that is amazing. And thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing just your experience in documentary filmmaking and everything that you've learned. Thanks for answering all my questions. And oh, I really enjoyed this. It yeah, was great talking was, with you, Molly. This was so much fun. So thank you so much. I know that it's, you know, you have a really busy schedule. You're in LA right now. And so it's yeah. actually really early in the morning for you. <laughs> and so I'm just really grateful for your expertise. And um, I can't wait to see all the other documentaries you continue to produce and how you impact the world in that way. Thanks. We'll be in touch. I'd love to know what you loved about this episode or tell me something that you learned. If you do, let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. Be sure to check out the archives for past shows featuring so many amazing entrepreneurs who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you are one of my regulars, thank you for your support. Don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to click that subscribe button to make sure that you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you take a moment to leave a review? Leaving a review helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. This show is produced by Third Wheel Media. Thanks so much for listening and go do something good with purpose on purpose. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose.